You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, as we are going through the book of Hebrews, only have a month left in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this morning, we are going to be reading from Scripture, verses 3 through 17, that is centered around endurance. The word endurance. And if you didn't grow up in church, or if you're not all too, fam- too familiar with uh, the scriptures, you probably do not associate that word endurance all that much with Jesus or Christianity. Uh, again, if you read the Bible, you may, but if you didn't, you probably don't. In fact, if you just Google it, or for example, look up the definition on Wikipedia, it explains it as such. Endurance, it says, is the ability of an organism to exert itself and remain active for a long period of time, as well as its ability to resist, withstand, recover from, and have immunity to trauma, wounds, or fatigue. That term is often used in the context of sports or aerobic exercise, all right? And that's how you probably view, or if you didn't grow up in church, endurance. However, the scriptures talk about it and does parallel it with running a race, but it is a different definition. While maybe many uh, in the world is thinking of endurance in the form of like Pilates, for example, um, we have a different definition of it. And I'm probably going to get emails for having uh, a female in leggings or something uh, uh, there. Okay, This is our definition of it. Bible definition, continuing Christian commitment in the face of difficulty. Born in a context of hostility, persecution, and the death of their Lord and his disciples, the endurance of Christians is it a, is, comes in the face of persecution and temptation, and it underlies most of the New Testament. You see, I bring this up in the differences because it makes the most sense reading about endurance here right after the conclusion of faith that we heard about last week. Yes, we saw all of these amazing and miraculous examples of the power of faith in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, but remember how we concluded last week. We also saw that there will be many because of their faith who will be persecuted and that will suffer for it. That Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, we must cast our sins on Jesus, fix our eyes on him, and run and endure in him in light of that suffering and persecution. And that we are not to give up, but instead do our best to find a way to still move forward, even if it's a straining or it's a struggle. And so with this in mind, God's word here this morning gives us a word on how to endure. Starting with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it shares how first we see endurance that is motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 through 4, also on the screens to the left and right of me. Consider him, talking about Jesus Christ, who we are to fix our eyes on. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It says here, Jesus endured 
the hostility and hate from both sinners, but also taking on our very own sin. And he did this to not only save us, to reconcile us back to God, but also to encourage us to not give up, to not grow weary, to not become, as God's word says here, faint at heart, but instead be encouraged that even when we do struggle against sin, we are reminded of the gospel here, motivated by the gospel, and how it says here, Jesus literally shed his blood for us. That's how it's phrased. In your struggle against sin, remember, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Talk about the ultimate Jesus juke right here, right? Like, oh, yeah, you're about to give up. Just remember, you didn't give up your own blood for this. Jesus did. And it's mentioned here in to motivate. Tell us, remember, you have the power to endure as the same power that when he endured but then rose from the grave is now in you when receiving him as your Lord and Savior. That we can be, we can endure, motivated by the gospel, but then read on in verses 5 through 11. We also see endurance that is motivated by fatherly love. Now, before reading and breaking down the next several passages of Scripture, uh, I want to share, I'm fully aware that there are more than likely many who are in this room um, that when we talk about a father's love, that, um, that that's a hard subject. The Bible does talk about that often. And it's important that we address not only how we view God as a perfect heavenly father, but the importance of fathers on this earth. And again, we're going to read and see why, but I will also never forget several years back where we did teach on this from a Sunday morning. And in one of our community groups, the leaders had shared how hard of a discussion it was because more than half of the people in their community group did not come from good fathers or never had a father. And therefore, it was hard for them to ever view God as a good heavenly father because, again, they never had one. And so for those who are in this room where that may be you, I want to share with you, um, I'm sorry. And I want to also share that uh, as we read on in God's word, there is hope and truth that this is important, even, even more important maybe for some of you to know you do have or can have a perfect heavenly father. But then also the importance of this on this earth. Read with me. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Okay, quick pause before we read further on. It starts off with talking about in our Heavenly Father who encourages us as children of God. I want to pause here because that is important for one, knowing that to be true of our Heavenly Perfect God the Father, but the importance of it for earthly fathers on this earth. In fact, it's so important that the few times God's word or the epistles in the New Testament addresses the role of an earthly father, it says that specifically, that fathers are not to provoke or act out in anger toward their kids, but instead there's to be encouraging. Look at what Colossians 3.21 says. Fathers Talking about earthly fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It doesn't take out discipline, but that discipline, as we're going to read on, is supposed to be done out of care, out of love, out of protection. And it gives a charge and says, do not, fathers, provoke your kids. You're to encourage them. And listen, church, let me remind you, this is so very important. I was not only reminded of this as we read God's word here, most important truth, but you have testimonies and witness of this just in the world. I was watching a documentary of a boxer. Some of you guys don't know him as a boxer, but you know him as the cocky kind of YouTube former star, Jake Paul. Okay? The documentary came out on Netflix, and I watched it. I've been intrigued by it because I remember serving in student ministry 10 years ago. Now, I mean, this annoying, cocky kind of guy, like millions of dollars, gets a house, a mansion in L.A. out of all places for uh, like 10 years ago. And again, the, the way he treats women, all those things just always annoyed me, okay? But now he's a boxer, I mean, to the, to the point where Mike Tyson has even said, this guy has brought boxing back, and he does have a different attitude mindset. And so it intrigued me, and I watched this documentary about him, and as it shows that, or kind of tries to convince that he's not the same person that he was before, more humble, moved to Puerto Rico, trains all day. He hit an all-time low, was raided by the FBI in that mansion. Everybody hated him. It wasn't just me. Um, and, and so everybody mocked, made fun of him. But he came back, this comeback story, where he's kind of like this humble, prove-it boxer that's now made millions. And he's proved it. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. I like boxing. We're like a boxing city. My, my brother boxed. And... So I've been keeping up with it, and like he has proved me wrong every single time. He's done well. He's kept up. He's beat people I never thought he would. And all that to say in this documentary is it gives this story. One thing stood out more than anything else to me, and it was this. They're portraying that this guy has millions. He's came back. He has the world now, but there is one thing that he still can't let go of that affects him, that really hurts him is hard. Guy has everything now. But one thing that he holds on to, and it's this, that his dad, who used to abuse him, won't admit it. Won't confess and admit how he had hurt him before. He has this tension where he says, part of the reason why I endure, why I'm so tough is because of that. But he won't even admit and say that has happened. And you have this scene that brought tears to my eyes where his brother, Logan Paul, who's just as much as a tool, is trying to convince his dad, listen, you just need to tell him you love him. You need to say, I love you. You need to tell him you love him. And the dad won't do it. Oh, church, when you have kids that grow up to be adults that do not experience the love and encouragement from a father, it affects us. It does. And there's a reason why it affects us even spiritually. There's a reason. It messes with the kid. It messes with us because of what dads represent spiritually. And part of that encouragement and that representation as we read on here is discipline. Not abuse, but loving, protecting discipline that we can receive both in our families here on earth and most importantly, what they represent and what God, our Heavenly Father, does with us. 
Look at verses 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation or encouragement that addresses you as sons, as children of God? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so we read here in God's word, and it reveals how a lack of discipline, it's not helpful. Even if that's an overreaction to maybe harsh or abusive discipline that one has experienced or one has seen. But it's not okay to just completely get rid of it. Think everything's going to work out. And we've learned this as families in here. We've learned this as a church. But one thing I'm so grateful for, uh, when, when Tiffany Knox was serving in her uh, um, uh, assistant role and uh, just to be able to again improve in behavior and uh, discipline within our kids ministry and so what she had set up and we trained our leaders and what is set up in all the classrooms to again teach our kids the importance of this we know and see this not just at the church or in our homes but we see this and know this and what God's word is communicating here in our very own spiritual lives that as children of God, we need to take discipline of the Lord serious. It shouldn't be a bad word, a cuss word. We shouldn't be discouraged or weary, it says, when he corrects us. Because we can trust and know, as verse 6 says, he is doing it out of love. That when you are being disciplined, you know you are being loved. That often those rebukes or even the punishment as God's children, they serve as certain warnings or even protection from even more or further consequences. So it won't get worse. And therefore, look at verse 7. It says, endure in those seasons and times. Press on. Receive it. Be encouraged even, knowing he is doing this because who he is treating you as his beloved children, as sons. Because as verse 8 indicates, those who are without proper loving and protecting discipline, they are, what is it said there? Illegitimate children. I read this, and I can't but help to go back to what I've brought up before, I've used in certain illustrations over the years, but my time as I served as a student pastor in Columbus, Ohio, and when I started mentoring and tutoring with middle school and high school boys, and me and the other student pastor that went into those schools said, give us the boys that you have the hardest trouble with. Give us the ones that are constantly in trouble, that are on the verge of getting kicked out, constantly in you know suspended give us the ones that are about to fail even though I'll, I'll be honest I didn't feel like I could be able to help out in the academic part at all but the trouble and discipline part I knew I had something to offer 
And as we served with those boys, specifically without dads, many of them had horrible examples of dads for years. It turned into what I have shared from the pulpit many times before. What I believe with all my heart was a season of a mini revival and movement. Many of the guys that were the hardest to reach, that would never ever come to church, that not from them, they actually invited a whole bunch of girls as well. And many of them that got saved, got discipled, and again, a good chunk of them, if I had to guess one-fourth, that still live for the Lord today. Many of them even have families. And as I looked at that season, not as a time of idolatry and trying to hold on to the glory days, but of God's movement, I can't but help to think of the very beginning of those conversations and as we built relationships with those guys and how when I and the other student pastor started bringing accountability, started reprimanding them when they were wrong, started sharing disappointment, but I'm still going to stick with you in these issues and problems. And most, even the ones that never ever would visit church, most of those boys had either said or in some way acknowledged. They never had any type of discipline, never had any type of structure before, but they appreciated that. They wanted that. Wait, parents, get this, teenagers in the room. Teenagers that wanted discipline wanted to know that you are saying these things, doing these things, because you're trying to protect me and you care for me. That those who had the most freedom in the very beginning wanted the rules and the discipline because they associated it with love and care and protection. Look at verses 9 through 10, as it reveals even more the importance of fathers in discipline. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject or submissive to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. Again, they're trying to make the most. Dads, you're not going to be perfect. That's why it says, has seen best to them. You are going to make mistakes. But as you try to be faithful, as you try to point to that heavenly father, as you try to be good and godly and lead in such ways, it says, as it seemed best to them for a short time, and we respected them for that. But he, talking about God, disciplines us, his spiritual children, for our good that we may share his holiness. Again, church, I do not want to beat down our dads, our future dads. After all, we see here in his word how God wants us to encourage. We're telling you, encourage your children, and it's what he wants to do to you, is encourage you. But I also don't want to downplay your role. I want you to know there's hope and a charge for you that you can be used in that role and your faithfulness within it to love, to protect, to guide, and specifically, as his word reveals here, through that loving discipline. That when a father who loves Jesus, loves his family, and disciplines out of that love, as it says here, we respect them. 
even more when it comes to our Heavenly Father doing that with us. That fathers only have a short time to make the most in guiding their children toward Jesus through that protection and love. But our good Heavenly Father uses it to make us more, what does it say here? Holy. I wonder why it says that discipline is for our good. It makes us more holy, which is discussed even further in verse 14. Therefore, we need fathers. Not only fathers, but good, godly, faithful fathers to point kids and others to our perfect father who never leaves us, forever loves us. Even and especially in a time where there's many fathers or good fathers that's absent in the lives of our kids. And get this, church, we're important when it comes to the answer of that. Nancy Piercy, in her latest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, she writes this, Is father absence a crisis in America today? In a survey by the National Fatherhood Initiative, a huge majority of respondents, 9 out of 10, answered yes. Now that may not be surprising, but what is surprising is what they identified as the solution. The church. Listen to this. When mothers were asked to pick the best place where fathers could learn how to be better dads, the number one place they selected was churches and other communities of faith. Churches were selected as very important, even by mothers who were not Christians, by 72% who said that they were not very religious, and 58%, more than half, with those who said they were not at all religious and they still said the number one place that fathers can learn how to be a good dad is where the church why well hopefully it's because the church is directing them to God's word and providing community to help the question for fathers was where they had in fact sought advice on how to be a better dad half indicated the church or a place of worship Fathers, are you growing in this? And if not, what's holding you back to try to take steps? Is God even lovingly disciplining you right now? Maybe to step up more in this way. And again, be encouraged. You don't have to be perfect. As a church, we'd love to help you take steps you have the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian and the gospel is sufficient. And remember, look at verse 11, the purpose of that discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And discipline is not a cuss word. It's not a bad word. Whether it's in families, whether it's church discipline, whether it's between you and the Lord and your spiritual life, God not only uses it, but shows his love in it. And he uses it to yield peaceful fruit of righteousness, to train us in that protection, to show that love, all things we want at heart. And this is what God uses with us, even as the church, his family, and in our own families. Verses 12 to 13, we see here how endurance and discipline, all of that is used for ultimate healing. Verse 12, therefore, 
Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What we ultimately want in the end is healing. Even thinking of the illustration or examples of a physical injury. It takes a process for that bone to be healed. What rehab is, it doesn't instantly get healed. Or a broken relationship that is not just automatically restored. It is a process. It takes time. And that is why endurance and discipline is used in that process for such healing. What we desire at heart. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. This is the talk that I have with grooms and groomsmen before they go out at a wedding. And I always wonder, why is the groomsman nervous right now? Like, what are you doing? You're just up there for the pictures, man. No, there's more than that. But often with the groom, it is, hey, just remember these certain things like that. Hey, you don't want your, like, future wife if she's coming out. And you're like, you know, like, be confident. Receive this time. And in the same way, make straight, it makes straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God uses that endurance, that discipline for healing. Look at verse 14. Some of the things we are to endure in. We are to strive for peace and holiness. Right after this subject He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This right here, this verse, I mean, look at it. Look at it in your word, in your hands right now. This goes against our natural worldly mindset and desires. Peace with everyone. Strive and pursue Holiness? Oh, that is not what is natural out of our hearts or in this world. I think about sports specifically. In fact, I come, many of you guys know, you mock me for it. I'm persecuted very heavily in this area, but I'm a Cleveland fan. And we have a motto in Cleveland when it comes to sports. It's Cleveland versus the world. And I know every kind of sports team, city can somewhat maybe try to say that, do that. It's the underdog and, yeah, try to motivate in that way. But listen, it is a Cleveland thing. Like, you type in, like, Seattle versus the world, you're going to see, like, nothing. Okay? It's like pictures of, oh, Seattle versus uh, San Francisco, kind of one of their rivals, nothing. You type in and Google Cleveland versus the world, you have blogs, podcasts, T-shirts, which if you visit Cleveland, they are all around. Just ask my buddy, Devrin Muff, who helped lead a summer study. He was amening in the back last service. And of course, we have this mindset, motto, and attitude, Cleveland versus the world. We are the mistake by the lake. I mean, three pro sports teams in in 50-something years, we can't win one championship, right? I mean, we're known for, like, the shot that Michael Jordan, like, did against us. Like, yes, of course we have to have this attitude and mindset that we're against everyone. And again, that's the underdog mentality. And it may motivate you or us in sports or as a fan. But let me tell you, it's not going to go far in this Christian life. We're not against everyone in this Christian life. 
Because as it says here, strive for peace with everyone. What the angels announced at the birth of Jesus Christ himself, peace, peace on earth. As we receive peace with God when receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior and what should come through the fruit of the Spirit, a burden and compassion for others to experience that peace themselves. Peace is what we are headed toward, what we believe in, and what we should practice to an extent. Jesus spoke peace throughout Scripture, and his desire is that we would be at peace with one another. And if you don't feel at peace with others, unless to ask, what can you do to be one who tries to bring peace? In a world around you where everything could be falling apart, but because of Jesus Christ, we can have peace and we're to strive for peace with others. It also mentions the word holiness. Look what it says here. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How important this is? Without it, which no one will see the Lord. That's why in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We are to strive for holiness, practice personal holiness. Does it mean we will get to a point where we'll be perfect? I don't believe so at all. Does it mean that we will not ever sin? No. But to strive for holiness means to grow every day more like Jesus Christ. To avoid anything we can possibly, anything we possibly can that is of sin or that attracts us to sin over godliness. It means we reframe the questions in our heart and in our conscience. We ask not what can I get away with or how far can I go, but instead do everything you can to try to avoid sin in your life, to be a better representative or what Nova had shared last week, ambassador for Jesus Christ. That the attitude we develop is, is this possible, could this possibly be sinful or distract others from knowing God? And joyfully I'll avoid it until God tells me it's okay. Pursue, strive for holiness, endure in seeking that in peace. Now look at verse 15. This is the most convicting verse out of all. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Part of what we're enduring is, is to seek grace that kills bitterness. Oh, how this verse is convicting. May I ask, what is bitterness? Bitterness is when you or someone else feels so hurt and offended, so mistreated, 
and they refuse to forgive the person or situation that you may perceive rightly or wrongly as guilty. And they may even be guilty, but you refuse to forgive them and you hold on to it. It's in your heart and attitude. You've already decided, I will not forgive that person, that group of people, or move past that situation, but instead I will hold a grudge against them, even if and when there's repentance. It's the sin of not being able to forgive whether they are asking for it or not, because we do know as Christians we are called to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, even if they don't ask for it. And again, church, similar to what I said about peace in this world, oh, do we live in a bitter world and have a culture of bitterness. And I can't but help to think about this concerning some of the greatest division in our country, from everything concerning race to socioeconomics. And I'll admit, even at times it's hard for me to listen or even to see the concerns or truths presented when they seem rooted in blind bitterness. Now, I know at times that is actually on me, and I'm going to be accountable to God for that. I know that I cannot become bitter when pointing or reading into potential motives. But whether it be previous conversations concerning racism in our country, or even right now, I'll admit, the zeal that has came with the latest number one song, Rich Men North of Richmond, bringing up concerns of our economy and how politics work, rightful concerns that many in here would say amen to. But what I've noticed, a little bit too much of amen. What I mean when I say that is Christians that all of a sudden are justifying saying, hey, he's a Christian, and what he's thinking of this is true. He didn't mention Jesus one time. Yeah, he may be saying something that is truthful, but you're treating this like a worship song right now. You are more excited about this and tweeting about this and evangelistic about this than the gospel of Jesus right now. And listen, I come from Youngstown, Ohio. We are like known to be one of the poorest. And you want to talk about bitterness when it comes to not having jobs? Google Jim Trafficant. And you'll find out a senator that stood up for Youngstown, but then was proven on wiretaps from FBI of taking side deals, working with the mafia, possibly even whacking somebody. And Youngstown, Ohio defended him to his grave because he stood up for them in the economy. That's called bitterness. And church, we deal with it as well. That's why churches split. That's why people at certain times can't grow. That's why they will have a hard time maybe even in their devotional life. And they can't view as others and be burdened for them and the need of Jesus Christ in their lives. And if you read the scripture here, it gives us, God is so gracious to show us the process of how this works. It says it starts as a root. It goes deep. It is hard to see. You don't see the root. It is in the ground. And it is the root in many of our hearts and lives. But it springs up in different places. That's what it says here. That no root of bitterness springs up. It's why you'll have a conversation maybe with a spouse that is very bitter. 
And you're talking about one thing, but all of a sudden, the thing that they're holding on to, it's coming up often in that conversation. Quit looking at your spouses right now, okay? Let the Holy Spirit, you're not the Holy Spirit doing the work. It's why with neighbors and friends, maybe people in the church, you can't but help. It comes up, has nothing to do with that conversation, but it springs up somewhere because it's rooted in. And what does it say? It says, it causes trouble. Like, do we think this is really edifying that it's going to build up? No, it's consequences for you in relationship with God. But guess what? That trouble doesn't just stay within you. Look what it says, and by it, many become defiled. Many. Bitterness spreads. Others are affected by it. And that's why we are to seek and obtain what this verse says, grace to kill that bitterness, to uproot it, to stop it from springing up. It is grace that gives us the power to forgive when forgiveness seems impossible. It is grace that gives us the courage to place our wounds in God's caring hands and to trust him. It is grace that reminds us that without God, we are wretched sinners bound to hell. But it is grace that washed us and made us anew when we repented of our sins and placed our saving faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross and what he proved through the resurrection. And it is grace that God longs to give us that makes a way for us to boldly walk into the throne of God like we have read and studied and been mentioned so often in this book. And we shall ask for that same grace to uproot and kill that bitterness in our hearts and lives. And in the end, as we conclude, sometimes we don't endure. Sometimes we give in. Sometimes we give in to that bitterness we give into that hostility and sin, that evil, that unholiness. We give up in the right view of discipline. And when the, dis when the Lord is even disciplining us. And it's why our final two verses show how we will regret not enduring in the Lord in such ways. A warning to us. Read with me verse 16 through 17. The warning regret from the example of Esau. That no one. So remember, this is continuing from the last sentence. This is the same sentence right here. By it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single mill. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. We covered the importance of holiness in verse 14. We will cover sexual immorality even more two weeks from now when we cover Hebrews 13, 4, which reads, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. But what I want us to conclude from these final two verses is that this story in Genesis about Esau, surrounded by this context of endurance and discipline, it shows us how Esau did something so stupid, sold his birthright by giving in to one ridiculous desire. Said, I'm hungry in the moment. I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. Not true, but he's convinced himself of this. 
to the point of this one desire, he says, I will give up the inheritance to God's blessings for just one momentary meal. And look at verse 17. Once giving that up, sinning before the Lord, he sought repentance with tears, but had no chance to repent. There's a reason why this is placed in this chapter's theme of enduring and receiving God's discipline. As you may be tempted to submit to certain temptations, certain momentary carnal desires, it encourages us to endure, receive God's discipline and protection, trusting and knowing it's coming out of love. Do not be caught like Esau, living with regrets. Coming back full circle, be motivated, verses 3 and 4, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood for you. You can endure. Everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed down. Before we continue in singing, I want you to spend some time with your heavenly father. Whatever he's revealing, whatever he's saying, whatever he's speaking into your heart, whatever he's exposing that's been done in the dark, but exposing with his light, I want you to spend some time with him. Maybe, maybe he's dealing with certain things of discipline, having the right view of it, receiving that, trusting his purposes for it. Maybe he's dealing with certain fathers in here that wants to grow, be more faithful and a representative of God, our Heavenly Father. He's even taking steps of caring, loving, showing that to his kids and his family and not undermining discipline that's needed in the home. Maybe for some of you, it's holding on to certain bitterness that needs to be uprooted and killed by grace. Maybe it's the lack of peace in your life or the lack of peace that you want to offer and give to others. Maybe for some of you, let's just be honest, you do not pursue or practice discipline of holiness. And where it says in God's word, without it, no one will see the Lord. It's not once saved, you get to do whatever you want. You're to become more like him. And part of that is enduring and disciplining that. For others, again, it could be just you not giving up, enduring. Whatever that is, whatever he's speaking, will you speak to your Heavenly Father right now? And remember, he loves and delights to hear from his children. Maybe certain commitments that need to be made. Maybe it's thanksgiving because of some of these truths. Maybe it's repentance, but then also as you repent, he helps restore. Whatever the Lord is revealing, will you spend time with your Heavenly Father, speak to Him, make vows, covenants with Him. And if anybody in here does not know Him, He wants to adopt you as His children. He wants to provide that protection and He offers that love. Maybe you've grown up in church, maybe this is new, but that sin that separates you from God, from being adopted as His children, Jesus took care of that out of his love for you on the cross. He died for your sin. 
He put his holiness and righteousness in place of your unrighteousness. He rose from the grave and he offers out of grace a gift, new life, if you just repent and turn of your sin and have saving faith in him. And maybe that's your prayer that needs to be needed right now. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior and to walk with him. Whatever that is, we spend time with him. I'll pray and we'll sing. Father, I thank you again for your word. As hard as it can be at certain times, especially when it convicts us, but as we read here and we can trust to know you do that often out of discipline to protect, to provide, and it's motivated by your love. I pray, Lord, for those who just committed to you, made certain covenants and vows in certain areas. Lord, I pray that part of that in giving that to you and committing to you will also be taking action steps, whether it be disciplers or in their community group or others to have accountability with. Lord, that they will figure out ways to be able to endure in those things you've revealed. And again, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for what we just got done singing, your mercy is more, that the sin may be plenty. Oh, but your mercy is more. Let that endurance ultimately be motivated motivated by the gospel. So again, God, we give you this time and we sing to you and worship you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.